right. Well, hey, everybody. It's Jeff Salzman, and welcome once again to The Daily Evolver. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2018, and I'm happy to be here with Corey DeVos. Hey, Corey. Hey, Jeff. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How you doing? Oh, fantastic. It's good. good yeah. Uh, as you may know and should know, uh, Corey is the editor-in-chief of Integral Life, and he put this Integral Live uh, TV station together, and I really appreciate it. And I encourage everybody to become a member of Integral Life. It's really a, a great contribution, and uh, it's a great value uh, at 100 bucks a year. So check it out. Um, so, you know, what we do here on the Daily Evolver is we daily evolve and we, part of that means that we look and see what is emerging in our culture and what's changing and, and what's getting more uh, good, true and beautiful, because that's the trend that we see through history. And, um, and there was one uh, story that really caught my eye. Uh, last week in the New York Times, and it was about BlackRock, which is the number one investment group in the country with $6 trillion of investable funds. It, it manages a lot of um, uh, 401ks and, 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 and institutional money, and that they have made a very dramatic move into green green stage of development. And uh, I'll, I'll argue that here. The, the article is a demand for change backed up by $6 trillion. And I would also point out this uh, article on the next to it, which is onion rings and a side of social progress, which is about the founder of uh, Sonic, the, the drive-in uh, fast food joint and his team and board of that's made up of majority women and minorities. That's, that's a side story, but the, this sort of thing is happening a lot. And this is part of the emergence that I'm talking about. And um, so back to BlackRock, it, 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 I'll, I'll just read from the article a little bit. It says, Lawrence D. Fink, who is the founder and chief executive of the investment firm BlackRock, it uh, uh, wrote a letter to business leaders saying that their companies need to do more than make profits. They need to contribute to society as well if they want to receive the support of BlackRock. Mr. Fink has the clout to make this kind of demand. His firm manages more than $6 trillion in investments. And <clears throat> that's a lot of money, people. That's $6 trillion is $6,000 billion. And each of those billions is a thousand million dollars. So this is really huge. Um, goes on to say, he writes to the, his uh, companies, society is demanding that companies, both public and private, serve a social purpose, to serve a social purpose. To prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. And the article goes on to say, it may be a watershed moment on Wall Street and one that raises all sorts of questions about the very nature of capitalism. It will be a lightning rod for sure, says Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, the dean at the Yale School of Management. It's huge for an institutional investor to take this position across its portfolio. 
He said he's seen nothing like it. And um, just to go on just a little bit, um, Mr. Fink wrote that he is seeing many governments failing to prepare for the future. And this is interesting as we sort of experience in our own country a gridlock in Congress and um, sort of a frozen polarized politics. He's saying, he's saying many governments failing to prepare for the future on issues ranging from retirement and infrastructure to automation and worker retraining. He added, as a result, society increasingly is turning to the private sector and asking that companies respond to broader societal challenges. It is a refrain that we're hearing more and more from various pockets of the business community. <clears throat> but for the world's largest investor to say it aloud and declare that he plans to hold companies accountable is a bracing example of the evolution of corporate America. And I love that, the evolution of corporate America, because, of course, corporate America, like everything, evolves. <clears throat> they go on to say that part of Mr. Fink's argument rests on the changing mood of the country regarding social responsibility. And, um, you know, I guess it's a mood, uh, but Integral helps us to sort of sort that out a little bit. A mood is a temporary state. That's uh, something that can come and go. We have this mood, we have that mood. Let me just take this phone off the hook. <clears throat> so yes, so a mood is a, a change in state that comes and goes. What we're seeing here is a stage transition. And as I said at the beginning, it's, it's, it's a move in corporate America to green consciousness. And green consciousness is known for its sensitivity. Sensitivity, particularly to people who have been left out of the system. And when companies integrate, uh, you know, social bottom lines to their financial bottom line, that is a big move into integral because Every company has, uh, you know, if they're successful in our modern world, they have orange down adequately. They have the orange modern stage of development down adequately. But they need to, uh, in order to be integral, integrate both sides, uh, you know, the, the traditional, which is the pre-modern, and the green, which is post-modern. They need to integrate those values as well. And you can see that most companies have a bias against green. You know, most, most companies are, uh, tr are modern and traditional, if you will. And then you have the companies that are modern and postmodern, but they haven't integrated the, the traditional so well. And I might point uh, a lot of the uh, Silicon Valley companies, uh, Google, uh, who can't seem to handle uh, a... Uh, you know, has a bias against conservatives that I think is uh, they're beginning to look at in their own company. So at any rate, that's how, um, th that's how integration happens. And if we uh, go back to the article, uh, and this is a New York Times writing, it says, companies often talk about contributing to society, sometimes breathlessly, but it is typically written off as a marketing gimmick 
aimed at raising profits or appeasing regulators. And we all know that, PR it's called. Mr. Fink's declaration is different because his constituency in this case is the business community itself. It pits him to some degree against many in the companies he's actually invested in, which holds the view that their only duty is to produce profits for their shareholders, an argument long espoused by economists like Milton Friedman. And here they're quoting Milton Friedman. What does it mean to say that business has responsibilities? Only people can have responsibilities, Friedman wrote almost rhetorically back in 1970 in this very newspaper. The quote, Businessmen who talk this way are unwitting puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society these past decades. And, um, you know, that, that was a different world. That was a, a world of capitalism versus communism, the Cold War, that Friedman, that was all back then. But, you know, we've learned, we've grown. And, and one of the things that, um, well, I, I loved it at the What Now conference. We had John Montgomery there, who is one of the top Silicon Valley lawyers. And he just talked point blank about that as long as profit motive is the only thing, and that's the way it works right now. That's the only thing that companies are responsible to, to their investors, to their shareholders. And so what we get out of that is a lot of stuff that's not good for society. You know, we, we, we have, and, and, and he talked about it, and then it's all over the place with Facebook and Apple. In fact, the New York Times article talked about how other companies are doing this as well. And the JANA Investment Fund, which is another huge investment fund, just wrote a letter to Apple asking them to investigate the um, uh, effects of their products on children. And they talked about how uh, Fink of BlackRock has forced Exxon to release uh, climate um, uh, impact statements. And so the, the, the integration is not necessarily through government regulation, although that's a part of it, but it's just through the um, continued evolution of consciousness. And this realization that when profit's the only thing that we're considering, then, you know, as a Silicon Valley company, we would hook people's nervous systems the way that food producers hook, you know, our endocrine systems with sugar. I mean, it, 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 we're seeing this, and this critique of Silicon Valley, where they're, um, you know, realizing that that profit motive just doesn't do it. But at the same time, if, if you're not rewarding your investors, you're committing malpractice. So this is sort of a natural organic process that happens simply because uh, it's the way evolution happens in consciousness, period. And that is, we're able to see more. We're just able to take more into account where uh, it's like, uh, we see the effects of things. We see the effects on um, children. We see the effects on animals. We see the effects on the environment because we're learning. There's nothing particularly mystical schmistical about this, where it's just, you know, aware of ever more cause and effect. And to see is to care. It's just 
built into the human condition. If we can see something and really see it, um, then we, you know, start to care about it. So um, I wanted to give an example. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, there it is. Um, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about how I wish I was able to stop eating meat. And willpower hasn't really done it for me. And, you know, commitment. Uh, but yet, the wheels keep turning and evolution keeps happening. And I've noticed in the last um, oh year or so that I can't seem to eat meat that looks like it was when it was alive, like chicken. I'm, having, it's, I'm finding it just naturally more repulsive, naturally less appetizing. And, um, you know, the will, my willpower is being replaced by just a natural realization of what's happening. And I, I don't know if you saw this video. I'm going to show it here. It's uh, on YouTube. It's really fun. Uh, and it shows this chicken that is a pet chicken of this little girl, Samantha, somewhere in Tennessee, I believe. And um, hang on. And it goes out. Could you see it, Corey? So it goes out and meets her every day when she comes home from school in the school bus. And there it is running out the little country lane. And she's, oh, my goodness, there you are, little chicken. And this has been her pet chicken. It's been in the house. It loves her. She loves it. And she walks back. And I'll fast forward a little bit. And there she is with her chicken. And, um, you know, I watched that. And I, um, hang on. And I can't say I thought, you know, a whole lot about it, but I did notice that the next time somebody served chicken, I really just wasn't interested. And so that's better than willpower. That's realization that's coming online. And I, I think that that's really terrific. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I want to I support that. I want to continue to nurture that in myself. I also saw, uh, just by the way, in the, in the by the way category, that there is a big progress in factory-grown meat. There was an article in Scientific American uh, in December about how uh, these companies are taking stem, style, stem cells from, you know, animals. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit about how they do it. So this is from Scientific American says, so how do these companies grow clean meat? In a nutshell, they take a biopsy of skeletal muscle, the kind of meat we eat today, isolate some satellite cells, precursors, the skeletal muscle, and culture them. Under conditions that approximate what happens inside the animal's body, the cells begin dividing, and with the power of exponential growth, pretty soon you've got actual muscle grown from the very same cells that would grow muscle in the animal. It says the process of, of milk and eggs is much easier, but they can do meat, uh, but certainly, but currently, they can only produce ground meat, hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken nuggets, and so forth. And um, 
And uh, the, the, the author says, having now eaten their clean beef, fish, duck, liver, yogurt, and more, I can attest that yes, they taste great. And there's a lot of consumers who are interested in, um, in, in buying that sort of thing when it comes on the market. And, um, you know, that's, of course, good for the animals. It's good for the environment. It's good for health in terms of E. coli and all of that sort of thing. And, um, and that's just a natural move as we gain you know, technology, as we gain sensitivity to animals, and it's happening in real time. And, you know, just to go back to BlackRock, it's, you know, of course it's happening in the, the consciousness of this, um, this uh, Lawrence Fink. I mean, how many billions of dollars does he need in order to be happy? He's an old man. He's done amazing things. And of course, this happens to a lot of, uh, you know, capitalists who make a lot of money. We think of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies who, you know, donated a lot of their money to libraries and the public good. But Fink isn't doing that. He's really looking to change the whole business world. And with $6 trillion, it's going to be interesting to see how he actually does it. I mean, and it's not just him, it's the Gate Foundation, it's a lot of organizations that are doing this kind of socially conscious investing, but it shocked people when BlackRock came out and did it. And of course, part of it is too, is the employees of the company. I mean, these people don't want to feel like they're just, you know, going to work to grind out more money for their investors. They want to feel like they're doing something good for their kids and their grandkids. And the best employees want that. And that starts mattering. The more we see, the more we care. And that's the sort of engine of emergence. And as we have seen all kinds of ways, these things can happen very quickly once they start. Uh, I think of the Weinstein thing uh, and, you know, just this raising of consciousness around women not being objects being subjects, actually, being I-thou relationship with women, with people of different races, with different abilities, with different shapes and sizes. That's green. That's this sort of excitement about looking into the eyes and seeing somebody that you saw as an object, and now you're seeing them as a person, as a subject. And just a quick little example of that for me is I've been watching this show, The Good Doctor which is about this doctor who has young, this young doctor who's a, a genius, he's a, but he has autism. He's, you know, I guess a 19 or 20 years old, and he's gone through medical school. And, and it's just beautiful the way they show his thinking and the, the problems he runs into with people and the people who don't understand them, the people who are on his side. But most of all, his humanity, even though it's not obvious in the way that it is with most people who have, you know, all of their antenna working. Uh, and it's really schmaltzy in a way, this show, but, but you know, I I'm guaranteed a good cry or two on each episode. It's just amazing. I mean, just to see his goodness and beauty is thrilling. And that's so cool. And I just also want to say that things that often look bad end up turning out good. And I think of, um, 
you know, back in the 80s when we had the AIDS epidemic and, you know, I'm a gay guy and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, you know, everybody already thinks that we're, you know, unhealthy and that we're, you know, a, a pox in society. This is, we're never going to get over this one. And, you know, look what happened. Uh, it, it's not a matter of, you know, people making judgments. It's about people being seen. And gay people, in large part because of our dilemma, because of this challenge of AIDS, we were seen more deeply than we would have been seen otherwise. And I think that actually contributed to the acceptance. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we get from Integral is this feeling that we're being lived. We're living, we're making decisions, we're rowing the boat, but the stream is, is, has its own power. And, um, and that is a relief because we don't have to, as we do before we have this evolutionary view, we have to, you know, fight for every piece of a zero sum game. You know, we have our enemies and we don't want them to get it, anything and we don't, you know, we don't give up anything. And that softens. It doesn't go away, but it softens and loosens when we realize that the whole system is being lived by an updraft of emergence that is taking us to ever unfolding levels of goodness, truth, and beauty. So, yeah, thanks for listening. And um, Corey, Corey. What, what's happening, man, on your side? Yeah, oh, that was fantastic. Um, I find myself cautiously optimistic after the uh -huh. show. <laughs> you know, the, the optimism comes, you know, we've, we've been in this space for a while. We know that organizations evolve. Yeah. Some of them successfully, probably most of them not because it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult transition for a lot of organizations. Uh, it's difficult individually, never, you know, never mind bringing an entire organization along with you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and my optimism comes from exactly that. We've seen some of these organizations really, really sort of blossom. And, you know, it's, it's actually interesting because a, a lot of times when these organizations try to bring in the green values, green values tend to be so opposed, like diametrically opposed to orange values, that oftentimes it requires sort of some kind of, you know, teal sort of surgical approach in order to actually weave those values together. So oftentimes when a company's going green, they're actually employing teal. They're employing, you know, sort That's of this right. construct aware, vision logic, you know, very yeah. systems focused process in order to bring those green values in a way that doesn't completely sink the rest of the company. Yeah. So, well, this is where I think evolution becomes really interesting, particularly at the stage of the game that we're at, because we can see that this whole process of stage evolution is accelerating. Yeah. The first stage was 250,000 years and then the 40,000 years and then 10,000 years and, you know, 500 years, and 300 years. And, you know, as we're in this frothy edge of modern, postmodern, in order for modern and postmodern to integrate, that's just almost by definition integral. Yeah. You know, because yeah. we have postmodern that's not integrated with modern. We have a lot of, you know, the, the uh, you know, uh, uh, hippies from my generation or, you know, just people who were anti-modern. They wanted to get away from the soulless technocracy. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, they, at, at Google, they can't do that. Right. <laughs> they got to keep the soulless technocracy right. as they add green. And that is sort of de facto integral. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, you know, and of course it's, it's um, preaching to the choir here, but it's important to remember too, that, you know, we can't really, when we're sort of talking about altitudes, it's not really like a paint by number, you know, a, a, a very few organizations you can call purely orange or purely amber or purely green. I mean, it's always a value stack. Yeah. And, you know, within a single organization, you've always got the red greed in there, oftentimes at the very sort of top of the, of the, of the food chain. Um, you've got amber bureaucracy because this organization would fall apart if people didn't know where they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to be doing and so forth. Yeah. You've got, you know, all of your orange ambitions and drives and, uh, you know, sort of um, empirical data, data analysis that can bring in more revenues and all that. And then, you know, oftentimes, you know, at least, you know, and for my generation growing up in the 80s and 90s, green has always been sort of relegated to like the HR department. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, exactly. And, and that HR department and is often fair enough. Famous. You know, it was it was the, the way in. I mean, yeah. the, 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 it was the first stage of that. Well, and that's 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 the big shift, Jeff, is I think that in every organization in this country, the HR departments are more powerful today than they've ever been in, in yeah. the history of business. Yeah. Which is interesting. Just, so that's, 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 that's the optimistic part of me. The cautious side of me is, you know, whenever I start to hear this narrative that, you know, our governments are failing to, you know, rise up to the challenges of our time, which is, I mean, look around, it's clearly true, but the dangerous side of that narrative is, so therefore we need to hand, you know, sort of these responsibilities into uh, the private market and let the market find solutions. You know, I think that's sort of, that makes sense for certain sets of challenges that we have, uh, but you know, very much doesn't make sense for a lot of the larger challenges that we no. have. No, uh, you know, right. I'm not going to rely on the corporations to come up with, you know, global regulations to help us put a dent in climate change. No. You know, corporation, individual corporations are not capable of that. I mean, a corporation can't build a Hoover Dam. Right. You know? I mean, these massive public projects actually, you know, sort of require this, you know, a, a a healthy governance structure. Yeah, absolutely. And my, my concern is always that this narrative is getting out that. Well, that, that's a good, it's a good point. And, and yeah. thank you for bringing it up because of course, at Integral, we're looking to just basically include it all. Yeah. I mean, just have a broader playing field. Yeah. So we have this polarity that we're all familiar with of the private sector versus the public sector. Uh, and there's an integration that can happen there, but though the, 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 uh, uh, the the what these private and public uh, organizations are doing still has to be done. That's right. You know, only it's done in a more intelligent way. I, the, the the great example I think of is the integration of masculine and feminine mm. over the last generations. If we think of the sexual stereotypes of our grandparents and great grandparents, and the the sex roles of how men and women are now men have taken on what was typically a feminine, caring, nurturing, that sort of thing. Women are out in the workforce, but we, we still want to have that masculine, feminine, feminine polarity, but we want it to be integrated. That's right. and so same with public and private. And I don't know exactly how that's going to look. I don't know if anybody does, but um, I feel like this BlackRock thing was big. Yeah. You know, Knowing, you know, the investment world as I do, it's just anathema. I mean, that, 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 it feels like that would have been laughed out of the room 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. And um, so I'm happy to see that. Yeah. 
Yeah. For sure. All right, man. Will we complete perfect and whole? Always already, baby. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you, Corey, for making this possible always. Again, uh, support Integral Life. Become a member. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you again next time on the Daily Evolver. Bye. Bye.